Uh, let's get going tonight. I want to get back into this, this little series we've been doing in the last two weeks. I think I've just, the last two weeks have been what I thought was the stopping point in our little journey through the, the book of Acts as it relates to the church. Um, each week I have got to the end of it and realized, no, there was more that we needed to say. This week we leave the book of Acts to specifically take a look at the church through a different lens. When we started this journey, the whole point was to get an understanding of what the church looked like in the New Testament and how they grew over time. That the church, as we see it in the Bible, was not this perfectly rounded out um, organism. Uh, or let's say it better, the church was not an organization with a bunch of structure. It was this fledgling organism that was trying to find its footing in the world. It didn't have a past. Its past was Hebrew. It starts to be flooded by non-Hebrew ideas. Some of it even looked pagan. Some of it looked Greek. Some of it looked like the cultures around it. The church was faced with these existential crises early on as to what they would be. What are we? They, they didn't meet in buildings. That wasn't because they eschewed buildings. It was because they didn't have one. And plus, their religion very quickly became illegal in the Roman Empire. By the middle of the first century, Christianity was literally illegal in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire comprised over 200 million people in the world. And, and for the most part, that was what, for what all intents and purposes, all that man thought was on the planet was that empire. Um, everything outside of it didn't exist. And you get some of that reflected in the way they write about the end of the world in the New Testament, because to them, the world extended to about the edges of the empire. Um, inside of that empire, Christianity became illegal within two decades of the resurrection of Christ, simply because Christianity was a faith that demanded the allegiance to one God and that his name was Jesus Christ and that he had resurrected after having been killed at the hands of the Romans. If their story was true, that made Jesus truly greater than Caesar because he did what Augustus could not do, what Julius could not do. He did what Nero was not able to do. He conquered death. He came back from the dead. And therefore, Christianity was deemed to be a religious threat to the empire. Um, this is the framework from which Paul would write his letters. This is the framework from which the Gospels would be penned. Um, this idea that this group of subversives almost were gathering in secret to talk about a resurrected and disappeared Jesus. That's crucial. A resurrected and disappeared Jesus. They didn't have a follower who could show up at their meetings. They didn't have their leader, rather, that could show up at their meetings and rally the troops. What they had were stories of the man who had lived, who had died, who had resurrected, and who had ascended into heaven. And those stories became their connection to a faith a faith that had very much its roots in Hebrew theology, but who, who was getting all of this inundation all of the time. And Paul becomes the voice out of which we learn so much about the church. We're going to read a lot of Paul tonight, but with that in mind, I want to title this evening, The Church Through the Eyes of Jesus, because I think that we've perhaps made a bit of a mistake in overemphasizing Paul at the expense of Jesus. And I don't want to do that because the church isn't built on Paul. 
the church isn't built, and, and I know this even rubs some the wrong way, the church isn't built on the New Testament, and the church isn't built on the theology of the New Testament. The church is built on Christ, who He is, what He represents, and the life of Christ. That does not in any way mean that we don't respect the writings of the New Testament or the Apostle Paul or any of the great apostles. We use them as an instrument to understand Jesus. We do not put them into that place. We do not follow them as if they're the leader of the church, but we do take what they say with great importance because what they say was birthed in that transitional moment of the church. And it was birthed in a lot of pain and a lot of persecution and a lot of tribulation. And we have a lot to learn there. I wanna start tonight where we started this whole series from Matthew 16, 18, in what is Jesus' definitive statement about the church, where he says, I say to you that you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I start here, as I say, with the most definitive statement Jesus makes on the church, because it's also one of the most forgotten statements in regards to the church, because we are all, we've all been raised, all of us, and we're different ages in this room, but, but the, the America that we all came up in, we cut our Christian teeth on church building, church growth, church growth seminars, church growth um, instructions. We, we, we talked about how do we build this thing. Uh, and then once we built the actual attendance, we talked about how do we build a bigger building and what should it look like and where should it be. And then if you came up in the 21st century or the latter part of the 20th century in the church, you heard about extension campuses and satellite campuses and second buildings. And now that you're in the internet and the streaming age, it's online church and uh, podcasted church and YouTube church. And we got all these extensions, all these ways of making it bigger and bigger and broader and broader. And I'm not mocking, cutting it down. I think use every available tool you can to tell people about Jesus. Why in the world would we not? Yes, use them all. But in the middle of that, we don't build anything. Because if we're followers of Jesus, he's building his church. Now, I know we get ourselves off the hook by saying, yes, but we're his disciples and therefore we're his arms and his legs and we're the only way he's going to build it. He's going to build it through us. But I still think that that's us co-opting what is the job of Jesus a lot of times. And so Jesus told us he was going to build his church. I think the question that ought to be asked to a lot of us in church is, how's he doing? Um, is he doing a good job? Because I think we've tried to take that role a lot of times of where he wanted to build it. Now we worked on the theology of this verse in that opening week, so I'm not gonna go back through it again. We talked a little bit about the gates of hell and we talked about Peter and what this verse is trying to say, what it might be trying to say. I leave that for that other lesson. You can go back and watch it literally titled, The Church. We didn't have anything else to build on at the time, so it was the church. And since then, trying to add a few layers to that. So let's go to the most famous moment, I think, in Paul's writings in regard to the church. We leave the book of Acts for tonight, and we go to Ephesians 5. And the, the fifth chapter of Ephesians is what almost every marriage seminar rotates around in the church. So if you go to a marriage seminar, they're going to use Ephesians 5. And they're going to tell husbands and wives how to treat each other. But I project, present to you that Ephesians 5 has very little to do with marriage. I think Ephesians 5 has to do with how Jesus treats his church and you should use it as an example of how you ought to treat someone you care about. Now that can be marriage, that could even be parenting, that could be something that you believe is worth dying for, sacrificing for, or being loyal to. Because Jesus is all of those things. He sacrifices himself for his church, he dies for his church, he's loyal to his church. The great example that Paul had, uh, the, the, the way that Paul knew how to illustrate it was husbands and wives. In fact, Paul will close his argument 
with a verse we won't get to tonight, but he'll close his argument by saying, it's been a great mystery that, man, that, that two people could join together and become one flesh. He goes, but that mystery is Christ and his church. And what he meant by that is that if you read the Torah and God says in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve were brought together and that two became one flesh, Paul said that's a great mystery. And I think the great mystery is because two people don't become one flesh. Not really. They become one in spirit, one in soul, one in aim, one in desire, one in dreams. They don't become one flesh. My wife and I are two different physical flesh. We have one, hopefully one heart, one, we have one spirit, but, but not flesh. And so Paul says, it's a great mystery. What'd that mean? And he goes, but the answer is Christ and his church. That with Christ and his church becoming one, the flesh, the body of the church becomes the body of the Lord Jesus. The flesh of Jesus becomes the church. And so that's ultimately the whole fifth chapter's argument. It's going to look like a couple of times we're doing marriage stuff tonight it's because we're going to use Paul's illustration, but just use it as a vehicle to get to the deeper things he's trying to say about Jesus. Let's read through it first, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now watch in every situation, he brings it back to Christ, which shows you that the point of his argument is not wives and not husbands and not relationships, but Christ and how Christ deals with us. And so he brings it back to Christ. Submit to your husband as to the Lord, the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. So at every point, he's leading you to Christ, wives, husbands, Christ, so that you're working your way back from Christ. If you want to know what it would look like to be a husband, then you watch Christ. If you want to know what it would look like to submit, then you watch Christ. It's not watch the best example we have of marriage or watch pastor so-and-so or watch brother and sister, whoever. It's watch Christ and then work backwards from there. Let him be the influence. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be their own husbands. So if you want to know what subjection and submission looks like, he doesn't give you a bunch of social rules. This is what a woman should do. This is what a man should do. Scratch that, he goes. Instead, just look to Christ. Watch how Christ subjects himself to his father. Watch how Christ treats his church. Know how Christ treats you. Watch all of those things sort of flow out of that. And, and marriage becomes a great illustration. 25, husbands love your wives. Again, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that this should be holy and without blemish. It feels like we went really fast through that. You know me. We go really slow through verses. The reason it feels that way is because we did. Because when I want to use it to set up, we're going to come back and work them a little bit in just a moment. But I, again, want to reemphasize. We get lost in this if we think it's about marriage. We find truth in this when we start to realize it's about Jesus as the head of the church, the church being his bride. And then it can become about all of the ways that he treats his bride, not simply about a bunch of commands about how we are to treat ours either to treat our bride or to treat the groom. Um, that leads me to this thought, and I want to work on this for a little bit. Most Christians have learned to interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul. This allows us to dismiss Jesus when he's less than palatable. And we did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount, and believe you me, Jesus is often less than palatable. If any man smites you on the cheek, turn to him your other one. I say to you, pray for your enemies, bless him that persecutes you. That's not palatable. You'll be a loser if you live that way. Welcome to the kingdom. This allows us to dismiss Jesus when he's less than palatable. I'm saying, well, Paul didn't address this. 
I get this argument a lot. I've made this argument a lot right here. Well, Paul didn't really talk about that. Like that ends everything. But what do you think about this Jesus statement? You go, well, you know, the Apostle Paul never really dealt with that. Like, like we've stepped up to another level. And, well, if Paul didn't deal with it, well, then, you know, Jesus, who knows what he was talking about. I actually think we need to flip this. Paul should be interpreted through the lens of Jesus. What we see in Jesus should shape how we read Paul and James and John and all of them. Why? Because we're followers of Christ. Jesus is our Savior. Christ died at Calvary, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, and poured out the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't do any of those things. Paul saw all of that in the same way you see that through Revelation and then shares with the church what he sees of Jesus. But I can't read Paul without understanding Jesus. And I think that's a little bit of Ephesians 5. Hey, you want to understand marriage? Start with Jesus. I could tell you a bunch of stuff about it, but let's start with Jesus and take a look at how he does it. And that's why I titled tonight The Church Through the Eyes of Jesus because I want to see how Jesus handles himself if he's the head of the church or the head of the body or the husband of the church, then how he handles us then would be how he'll handle us now. Which means that the church is a reflection of, of the marriage and the union between Jesus and us. And so I break this down into three parts from what we just read. First, and this will help us to sort of lay this out tonight in three little segments. All right, Sort of unofficially. We don't have a, a real one, two, three, but we're going to work off of these. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. We start there. Christ is the head of the church in the way that a head tops the body. In the way that everything beneath the brain answers to the brain. So that the head is instructing the body on what to do. Sever the head from the body, the body dies. Sever the foot from the body, the body lives. Sever the hand from the body, the body lives. Sever the head from the body, not a chance. That's why he makes Christ the head, because he, out of him flows all the instruction. Out of him flows all of the health. Plus, it's a top-down analogy. This is the same spot you poured the anointing oil in the Old Testament. The anointing oil went to the top of the head. It wasn't some little dab across the foot. It was a, probably a horn of oil that then flowed down. And because the understanding is that all good flows from the head down. All bad flows from the head down too. And, and th therefore, blessed is a place that has a righteous leader. That which doesn't, everything flows downward. We like to say a fish rots from the head down. Kind of the same analogy. And so downward from Christ, head down, head of the church. We're going to start there. Then there's this one, two verses later, that Christ loves the church. Paul would say he loves it so much. He would give himself for it. He would lay his life down. Or as Jesus would say, greater love hath no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. By the way, greater love hath no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends is not a principle that is applied to any other human being. That is applied to Christ, the great friend. Right? He's the one who laid down his life for us. We're going to deal with that as our second one. And then 27, Christ sees the church as, quote, Glorious without spot or wrinkle. And I put this in quotes because, of course, that's a pull from Ephesians 5.27. So I want to show you Christ as head, Christ as the lover over this church, and then the vision that Christ sees for his church. And how does he see her? Glorious without spot or wrinkle. And that's what we're, where we're going to end up tonight because I can't think of a better place in the world to end 
than how Jesus sees his church, even in the middle of all of our problems. And believe you me, I don't have to extend up here and list the problems the church has. That's low hanging fruit, man. Just to come in and go, look at the problems in the church. Look at the problems in the ministry. Look at the pro- problems are easy to find. Okay. Problems are easy to find. Success is harder to find. Beauty is harder to find. Spotlessness is harder to find. And yet he sees us as glorious without spot, and without wrinkle, which means Jesus is doing the hard work. So when you spot problems, you're doing the easy work. Just remember that. The easy work is spotting problems. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with this church? What's wrong with this city? What's wrong with this country? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with it? That's simple. It doesn't mean you're right, but it's easy to come up with a bunch of stuff, right? What's right with it? Always harder to do. Because what's right usually causes us to have to humble ourselves. And so for Jesus to be able to look at his church glorious without spot, without wrinkle, that's the hard work. And he asks us to do that hard work. We're going to join him in that hard work. So let's start at the top. Christ is the head of the church. We do that with Paul from Colossians 1.17. 17 to 20, Paul says this. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're reading from the NRSV here, and I'm going to tell you why. New King James, King James, in him all things consist. It's just not a word we use. Nobody... When we say consist, um, we, most people couldn't come up with anything. If you said, just write down what consist means. Uh, we might even think it's the root of a bigger word. So I went with the NRSV, which cleans it up a little bit in the Greek. He, he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Because literally, that's as good as it gets in the Greek. Consist is that. It it's, it's pulls in the divergent things and brings them into unity. So it takes all of this stuff and it holds it together. So if in Christ who's before all things and in Christ all things are held together, everything works because of Christ. At least that's Paul's theology. Everything is what it is because of Christ. I really think that... I'm going to start over. I think, all right, this is not the say of the Lord. This is, me. this is Paul White's opinion. I really think that with no knowledge of gravity, Paul's getting as close as he can here. All right, Sir Isaac Newton's not going to live for hundreds of years. But I think Paul's got onto something he just wouldn't have known it was called gravity. I think Paul is saying the reason stuff holds together, the reason stuff holds down, the reason the earth moves through the galaxy, the reason the things are consistent, why the stars keep moving in the same pattern in the sky. The reason why the moon rises there and the sun rises there and we don't have any good science for it because Paul's not trying to write a science textbook. I think he does the best he can do and says everything holds together because of Christ. And even though we can call that gravity, I think he's, I think he's onto something. That everything is what it is because Christ holds these things together. And then our verse 18, he's the head of the body the church. And so Paul conflates the body with the church or what we like to call the church is the body of Christ. That's where we get that phrase. The church is the body of Christ, Christ being the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. What a verse. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn, not the lastborn. He's the firstborn of the dead so that he might have first place in everything. So ultimately, 
The goal and the design is that the firstborn, the first risen Christ becomes first place in all future risings. Everyone else who rises up into life in Christ has as their own federal head, Jesus, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is really a point back to 17. If Christ holds everything together, what holds Christ together? And so Paul's moving up the theological ladder. And so Christ, who holds all things together, is the firstborn of what's coming. What's coming is everyone in Christ. That's the first, everything that's going to be born in him. And then what holds that together is he moves up the ladder to go in him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So God lives inside of that Jesus who holds all things together, who is the the body, is the church. So if in Christ, the fullness of God dwells, and the church is a body of Christ. Where's the fullness of God dwell in us? The church is an expression of the fullness of God. This is why closed door policies on the church equal a closed door God. So when we push people out of the church, we are saying not all things consist in Christ. Some people consist in Christ, but not all people consist in Christ. When we reject people philosophically, theologically, personally, emotionally, politically, governmentally, financially, in whatever respect we don't think they belong, in that moment we neglect that the fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ is us, the body. This is the great mystery, Paul would say, that two flesh could become one. What's that look like? He goes, that's the body of Christ. That's Jesus in the flesh inside of his church. So to push people away would mean that Paul's wrong, that things do not consist in Christ. They exist in the church where he holds people together there, but he's not really going to be first place in everything. He's just going to be first place in the ones he likes. See where Paul's argument is. And you proceed onward with him. Through him, God was pleased. To me, this is, to me, this might be one of the most underappreciated and powerful verses in the entire New Testament. And I do not say that lightly. Colossians 2.20 Through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile all things to Himself, whether those things are on earth, visible, or whether those things are in heaven, invisible, whether they are tangible or intangible, whether they are fleshly or spiritual, whether they are earthly or heavenly, he made peace with all of it through the blood of his cross. Doesn't get any better than that. For my money, that's the money verse of Paul's writing. That's the apex. That's about as good as it gets. Colossians 2.20. Through Christ, God reconciled all things back to himself. Can you see how this, this argument's been working to this? Because if you go back up to 17... And Christ is holding everything together. And you get down here to verse 20. And God is pleased to reconcile all things to himself. Who's holding it all together? Christ. Who's his body? The church. So we ought to be the expression of that kind of love. And the expression of that kind of holding together. And the expression of that kind of affection. So when, the, when Paul says Christ is the head of the church. Stop looking that. Please stop viewing that as. He bosses the church around because that's kind of how we preach that because it's also how we preach the husband and wife passage. So we go husband's head of the wives. That means the wife's got to do whatever the husband says. But Paul's preaching Christ as the head of a church in which he holds all things together as an expression of his father's love. 
which means that Christ is the head over a body that is the expression of his very essence, that expresses who he really is, and he's pulling everything he can into that. So to be head of the church is to take a responsibility for pulling into his body all things. What an amazing thing. It would look a little bit like this as far as I'm concerned. The church, the multicolored body of Christ. I didn't mean multi-ethnic or multi-racial. I literally mean the rainbow of who we are. I'm using Peter's famous manifold temptations need a manifold grace. Manifold in the Greek, multicolored. Multicolored problems need a multicolored grace. We're a world with multicolored problems. We got a rainbow full of problems. Fortunately, we got a God full of rainbows. That's Revelation chapter 4. You get to heaven, there's a rainbow that surrounds the throne. The dominant color is green. I'm not, I'm not making that up. That's never preached. <laughs> it's just incredible. We act like that's 10,000 years out in the future. In Revelation 4, at the ascended, seated Christ, there's a rainbow that surrounds the throne, and the dominant color is green because to the Hebrews, green was new life. And so the, new li- the color that comes out of a resurrected Christ is the new life. And yet the same rainbow that hangs in the sky over Noah's ark as it's rotting at the top of the mountain, is the rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. And do you know why it was a bow? Because the bow was the weapon of the day. And God hung his weapon up and said, I'm not not out to get man. And when Jesus dies at Calvary and resurrects and ascends into heaven and is seated in Revelation 4 as the king, there's a rainbow hanging there because... God's not fighting anybody. I think that's the gospel. That's, that's, an incre- that's an incredible image of the gospel. So the church is the multicolored body of Christ. It's the vehicle by which God will come to have first place in everything. The church is that vehicle through which God... This is why I'm saddened by the church a lot of times because we're crashing the vehicle. We're doing everything we can to slam the accelerator to the floor and steer into the nearest bridge abutment. Every time we go flying down the road with the good news of God's grace, we sabotage the car by trying to put a bunch of rules and regulations and and all kinds of issues and see who gets held out and who gets to stay in. Division, division, division. We're the vehicle by which he's going to come to have first place in everything. And as head of the body, Jesus holds it all together and he builds it his way. So what would his way look like? Well, it probably looks like the way Jesus built his ministry. And when he was on the earth, his disciples included a bunch of tax collectors, zealots, thieves, and hotheads. Which tells me that that's probably what the church looks like. Or at least let's say it this way. The church should be full of sinners. And, and, and the reality is the church actually is full of sinners. But what's happened is we're a bunch of sinners that carry the Pharisee's speech in our suit pocket. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? That, that parable where the Pharisee goes, I'm glad I'm not like this publican. I tithe, I attend temple, I sacrifice. And then the publican's over there, beats his breast and goes, God have mercy unto me, a sinner. And what we like is we like the publicans to come to our church, but we just want them to turn into the Pharisee. And we miss the point of the parable. Because the point of the parable is not, boy, if the publican would get it right, he'd pray like the Pharisee. The point of the parable was you're all publicans. So start acting like it. By seeking a merciful God. 
and letting them speak truth in front of that merciful God, let him pour out his grace on you and let him pour out his mercy on you. And in that, we're tax collectors and zealots and thieves and hotheads. And it, that just tells me if he's building his church his way, then we don't get to qualify people. We just love them. I had a minister reach out to me this week and ask me about some people that's been coming to his church. And he mentioned their lifestyle. It was a small community. And he said, everybody knows everybody. And he goes, they've been coming to our church. And he goes, you know, I'm happy they're here, but I'm a little concerned. He said, I'm a little concerned about what the reputation might be in our town. And he, the guy's coming from a pure place. I really know him and I know his heart. And he's trying to grow in this understanding of God's grace and God's goodness. And one of the last communications that I had with him this week is I said, something that the Father has been working in me the last six or eight months, maybe a year, is that all of the people that I have always thought are coming to church because they need us, they need our message, they need to transform, they need to change. One of the things the Holy Spirit's begun to show me, almost with a wink in his eye, is the people that you think have been coming so that you can help them are actually coming to help you. That I, that I pull people in, not so that my church can fix them. I pull them in to fix my church because my church tends to get a little judgmental and cold and religious and stoic. I like to bring in new life. And when I bring in new life, I go to the highways and the hedges and I compel them to come in. When I fill my party, I go fill them with vagabonds and sinners. When I fill my party, I fill them up with tax collectors and publicans. And I do it frequently. I fling wide the doors frequently to my church and I bring in fresh blood. And I don't do it so that my religious people will fix them. I do it so that they will fix some of my religious people. So that they will not, not and when you say that, there's always a certain populace or a certain mindset that goes, well, what are you talking about? Just trying to bring more sin into the church. What the church needs is more sin. Listen, you don't have to worry about bringing in more sin. The church people are doing fine with that. Yeah. All right. Church people are doing fine with sin. They're committing as much of it as they think they can get past the all seeing eye of God. And they're doing a bunch of it. They don't talk about, I'm not. When I'm talking about God flinging wide the doors and bringing in people for the church, I'm not talking about flinging wide the doors and teaching people how to sin. I'm talking about teaching people how to love, teaching people how to accept, and maybe even this, maybe even teaching people how to live. Because all the parables of Jesus that had parties, he always fills his parties with party people. Like he invites his friends and they reject him. And he goes, all right, go, go out and get the drunks. Go out and get the party animals. Go clean the gutters out. Bring them in. Those people know how to party. Get them in here. He goes, because I want to sh- lavish my love on people. If you think I'm wrong, Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding reception. Yeah. And he, does it, he doesn't raise the dead, and he doesn't feed the hungry, and he doesn't heal a leper, and he doesn't open deaf ears or blind eyes or a dumb tongue. He takes six water pots meant for purification, And he dips a ladle in them and out comes the best wine that the party has had all week long. And there's no good reason Jesus does this except one. Jesus likes to make people happy. I have tried to dissect John 2 up and down. I used to be in the camp of Jesus is making welches. 
sugar-filled grape juice because there's no way he's going to make real wine because there's no way he's going to let... And then I, and I got past that, realized Welch wouldn't live till the 19th century. So Jesus wasn't really trying to be technological. Um, couldn't figure out why you'd give wine to all these people at the end of a party. You give wine to a bunch of people that's been drinking wine. You know what they're going to do with the wine. And it almost looks like you're condoning it, Jesus. I got into a lot of arguments with the Holy Spirit over this one for a long time. And my landing spot is just this. It's God going, you don't tell me who I get to have a party with. And so if I want to turn the water to wine, I'll turn the water to wine. In fact, I'll do it up front in the gospel so I can set the tone for the whole gospel. And the rest of my gospel writers didn't write it down. But when I got to John, final writer, I want you to put that in there. Because I want them to see that this is the Jesus that flings wide the doors. I didn't intend to be on that so long. <laughs> Tax collector, zealous thieves, hotheads, disciples... Water turned to wine kind of people. Right there. All right. Transformation. All right. Let's move on to number two. He loves his church. We've got to hurry. Mark chapter 10. Jesus loves his church. Let me show you what that love looks like. Mark 10, 42. Jesus called his disciples to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's the way of the world, by the way. Verse 42 is the way of governments and power structures and the business world, as you know it. Everything you've ever known in your life about the way the world works is verse 42. People that are considered rulers lord it over the people below them. Great people exercise authority over non-great people. All right, that's generals and presidents and CEOs, maybe even you and your house. This is the power structure, this is the hierarchical structure of the world. Now Jesus is about to flip that pyramid over. This is where the leadership seminars stop reading in Christianity. Because he's going to flip the power dynamics. So watch what Jesus says. It will not be this way among you. Whoever desires to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of everyone. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. And he came to give his life for ransom for many. Why do I say that this, what the, that this has to do with Christ loving his church? Because when Paul told men, husbands, to love their wives in Ephesians 5... He told them to, to be willing to lay down their lives for them as an expression of love. And where did he get that? This is not interpret Jesus through Paul. This is interpret Paul through Jesus. He got it by watching Jesus who laid his life down for the people he loved. And who are the people he loves? The thieves, the vagabonds, the sinners, the tax collectors, the zealots from the previous verse. And the criminal on the cross that he hangs next to and goes, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And the killers at the foot of the cross and those gambling for his robes at the foot of the cross and those who condemned him to death at the cross. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. This is not a power move. Powerful people don't do this. Powerful people use their power to crush opposition. They use their power to crush people that wrong them. They get revenge. They win. And we, we actually are in a culture that's taught all of us that we're supposed to win. You're supposed to win at everything. You're supposed to win at every deal. You're supposed to win in every transaction. You're supposed to win when you sell something. You're supposed to win when you buy something. If you can't win, don't buy it. If you can't win, don't sell it. If you can't win, don't play. And even though we act as if we don't have that, it's so deep in us. I caught it in me just this week in a situation and heard the Holy Spirit say, who taught you that... The best expression of you is to be a winner. And so I started inventorying my whole life and found that it had been repeated over and over and over again. And then I found there was something else in me that needed to die. 
This little side of me that thought it needed to win stuff. And I'm reminded of Jesus putting the child on his knee and saying, unless you become as a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't do that because kids are cute. Jesus did that because in the first century, kids were the lowest rung of the social totem pole. Jesus was saying, unless you are the biggest loser in the world, you don't get in. So then this is what you're following. This is the Jesus you signed up to follow. This guy right here. It shall not be so among you. You want to be great? You got to serve the person next to you. You know, love unlovable people. You go, well, who's my neighbor? Because that's always, our hand always goes up. It goes, who do we have to love? And you see this happen in the Gospels. Who do we have to love? And Jesus is always telling stories, and it's the people we don't want to love. And here's what Paul would say about that. Let's see Paul through Jesus, not the other way around. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, loves Love serves, it doesn't seek its own. This is one of those great, you know, we, we read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. Like people want to read 1 Corinthians 13 as an expression of love. I've stood up at weddings and read 1 Corinthians 13. And I got to be honest with you, as I was reading it and the bride and groom staring into each other's eyes and smiling, I thought, you don't believe half of these because you're not going to do this. You want to tell me, you want to tell me with all your heart, you're not going to seek your own. Your days of seeking your own are done. They ought to be. Because true love doesn't seek its own. That's, that's just an example, but this is reading Paul through the lens of Jesus. Where'd Paul come up with that? He watched Jesus, who didn't seek his own, when Paul told men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. He was teaching something controversial to the audience of his day. He was teaching servanthood on the part of the man. By the way, Ephesians 5, if, you're, if, if you go to a marriage seminar and they teach Ephesians 5, the people that ought to walk out ticked off are not the women. It ought to be the men. Because Ephesians 5 was not meant to put women under the submission of a violent man. It was meant to teach men to love their wives like Jesus loves his church. And men don't do that naturally. Amen. So Ephesians 5 is meant to put men under conviction to go, mm, I don't think I can lay myself down like Jesus did. And that was Paul's instruction. And by the way, in the, in the world of Paul's day, no one, no one treated their wives the way Christ treated his church. And Paul, so Paul, this is the stuff that got Paul killed, was going, listen, you're in the new covenant, man. In the new covenant, you're going you're to love like Jesus loved? He was teaching servanthood on the part of the man to love our wives as Christ loves the church is to be the servant, to hold her as the most precious possible gift. And that's the way that Christ loves his church. Here's your final one, my favorite of all of them. Probably won't spend as much time on it. And that is, he presents this to himself as a glorious church. Ephesians 5.27. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she should be holy and without blemish. You know, before we read the next verse, I want to point something out. That's this, that Ephesians 5.27 is one of the most missed quoted eschatological verses in the Bible. That verse is not eschatology, but we quote that like it's eschatology. Let me tell you what I mean. Eschatology, study of the end, the eschaton, tology, study of, eschka, end days, study of the end times, prophetic. We quote Ephesians 5, 27 like it's an eschatology verse that someday, here's how we quote this. This is how I heard this my whole life. Someday Jesus is coming back and he is coming back for a church that is glorious and without spot and without wrinkle. And that's not what that verse says. This is not a prophetic verse of what will happen at the end of the world. 
This is a promise of what the church has now. Jesus presents us to himself. If he hasn't presented us to himself, then we're not married. That's a sex term. This is as close as you can get in the Greek terminology of Paul. When he presents her to himself, when she enters the bedchamber, he sees her as a virgin. She's not a virgin. She's whored with every god in the land. We're talking about the church, the people in it. We're not pure. We're not chaste. We've been with everything else, including empire. We've been laying up in the bed with every power structure we've ever known in our entire lives. And yet when Jesus brings us in to the bedchamber, this isn't Sunday when he comes back, cleans us up. Because here's how we preach this. He's coming back for a glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. And some of you here are not glorious. And you got spot and you got wrinkle. And if Jesus comes back tonight, you're going to miss the rapture. And then we play the organ and then fill the altars with people that need to get saved again so they can go home because they haven't been living glorious without spot, without wrinkle. This isn't, he doesn't say anything about how they're living. He say, this is how he sees her. How does he see his church? Glorious. Without spot, without wrinkle. Do you think she's living glorious without spot, without wrinkle? Have you hung out with any other believers? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Have you been honest with yourself? No, you're not glorious. No, you're not spotless. No, you're not wrinkleless. But when he looks at you, that's how he sees you. He's not coming back to get that kind of church. He's bringing that church into the bedchamber. That's the romance of knowing Jesus. Knowing him as he says, I see you as your skin's perfect, your tone's perfect, your body's perfect. There's no wrinkles. There's no spots. He goes, you are glorious to me. I think that's incredible. Not someday, but it is now. And so, then 28, man, ooh, really turns the heat up. Because 28, he goes, okay, in light of that, husbands ought to love their own wives the way they love their own bodies. Because he who loves his wife loves himself. He goes, you guys already think that of yourself in 27. This is Paul's argument. You already feel that you're 27. Therefore, love your wife like she's verse 27. And that isn't someday. Because if it's Jesus someday, then this whole thing doesn't need to apply to you now at all anyway. No matter how you love your wife now, it's going to be someday. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. He nourished it. He cherishes it. Just as the Lord does the church. We're members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. I like 29. You don't hate your own flesh. You nourish your body. You cherish it. You do that as a reflection of the way Christ takes care of his church. That leads me to this final thought. The church has a lot of problems. And like the seven churches of Revelation, I was going to go to the seven churches of Revelation and show you some highlights, but I knew we'd be right here and that's not going to happen. Like the seven churches of Revelation, sometimes he has somewhat against us. Remember that from the seven churches? I have somewhat against you. He's not, he's not mad at her. He's not, he's, not, he's not finished with her, but he has somewhat against her. He sees value and he nourishes us. We are his And he will save us in the way that we would fight to physically stay alive. That last sentence is clunky. And I knew it was when I wrote it, but I wanted, I thought I could explain it maybe better and I could sit, write it. 
And that is this thought, that because what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that a man never hates his own flesh, he nourishes it, he cherishes it just the way the Lord does the church. The way I see that is Paul saying a man fights to stay alive. He preserves his own life. And the reason he does that is because he loves his life in the way that Christ loves his church. And so just as you will preserve your own flesh to keep from dying, so will Christ preserve his own church to keep her from dying. The health of the church is in Christ's hands. The church is in Christ's hands. Why? Because in him, all things consist. And his work is to become first. In not just in that church, but in all things. And, and to me, the destiny of what God wants to do in the world is through, through the, the Christ that holds all things together, the expression of that holding is the church. So through what the church has to offer is to bring fullness to the earth. I, I think that the church re enters and re-enters these transformation stages, seems like almost generationally, where she has to reinvent herself. And almost every time she does, she, someone within the church thinks it's an attack of the devil. Okay, almost every time the church has to reinvent her thinking, her preaching, her singing, somebody that's holding on to some image, some golden calf image of the church that they think was the best time, you know, the best of times, are always afraid of any kind of transformation because they think that the devil is always behind all of the moves to tweak and to change. And I think we're not giving Jesus enough credit in how to build his church. I think we think it's our job. I think we think we're the gatekeepers of the church. We build the church. We supply it. And therefore, we got to kick out all of this other stuff. And I think it's because we don't really think. I'm, I'm all the way back to my first verse tonight. We don't really believe Matthew 16, 18. On this rock, I build my church. We don't really believe Colossians 1, 17, 18, 19, and 20, that in him all things consist and that the body is his church. We don't really believe Ephesians chapter 5, verses, verse 30, where he takes care of his body the way you'd take care of your body. And therefore, because we don't believe those things, we think it's our responsibility to police the church, sheriff every sermon, sheriff every song, fix all the stuff. And what our job was actually to do was to feed his sheep. Because when he told Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, you know I love you. He goes, well, then prove it by feeding my sheep. That's it. Just feed them. Peter got it. Because when, when you get to 2 Peter, he goes, He is the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. And we are his under-shepherds. And to the, to the conference at Ephesus in Acts 20, Paul goes, We are the shepherds and the wolves, he goes, will rise from within and without. He said, but we shepherd the flock of God. They didn't abandon the shepherd motif in favor of the Caesar motif. They had not left behind the power paradigm of Jesus. That flipped the power paradigm on its head. Serve, because that's what shepherds do. Serve the un those unable to serve themselves. Because a sheep can't survive in the wild. To be a shepherd must be a humbling job because everything you're doing is for those in complete defensive, 
with no defense mechanism of their own. They can't swim, they can't run, they can't fight. When Jesus calls himself the great shepherd, we know by default we must be the sheep. And not, while that sort of insults some, what it is really saying is that Jesus is the ultimate expression of servanthood because that shepherd must spend his entire life trying to keep things alive that have no ability to keep themselves alive. That's an amazing love. And that is what we do. We just feed his sheep. They're his sheep. We just feed them. I think it's what the church needs to get back to. That's what I love about our little expression of the church in this room. Some weeks this size, some weeks twice this size, some weeks half this size. But it's a little expression of the church. What I've tried to do is feed the sheep to walk through the door. I don't try to build you. I don't try to use you. I don't ask for your money. I don't even really ask for your time. You know I'm going to be here. That camera's going to be on. And I'm going to teach. And that's how this whole thing started. And what I hope is that you take that expression and you pass it on. You pass it on to your coworker and your neighbor. And this one's the tough one. You pass it on to your enemy and your persecutor. You pass it on to the one who you would rather see die. And then you know you're learning how to feed his sheep because as long as they are your enemy, it'll be hard to see them as his sheep. The minute you can start to see them as his sheep, it'll be hard to see them as your enemy. Maybe that's the whole point, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for what I, what I think has been a wonderful chance to take a look at Jesus again. Through the eyes of Jesus, we've got to see the church tonight. And maybe we got to see the church as bride. We got to see her as the, what Paul said was the chaste virgin. We got to see her as glorious and without spot and without wrinkle. And even though none of us live in a way that's glorious and without spot, and without wrinkle, we know that we are that because you say we are. And because of that, you protect us and you love us and you're building us up. We are not the gatekeepers of truth. We are not the gatekeepers of the church. We are not building anything. We're just feeding your sheep, being fed by the great shepherd. And Father, teach us how to do that every single day to our neighbor, to our friends, to our families, to our coworkers, to our classmates, to our enemies, to the stranger. Because if the church is truly going to be the expression by which you do finally bring everything to yourself, it's going to happen because we treat everybody like they're worth being made part of the body and love them in that way. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.